Good morning. My name is my name is David, and I am a deacon. Thank you, the moment you've all been waiting for. Now that I'm a deacon, I'm going to open this uh, by apologizing to my children because they are now sermon fodder for the rest of their lives. Uh, including the following analogy. Um, one of the things you deal with as a parent, um, but really, parenting analogies apply to everybody because you were kids too, so take this to heart. Um, you have to deal with your kids occasionally hitting or biting each other. Um, I doubt I'm alone in this. Um, one of the things you'll find if you read the literature in child development is that kids bite each other not just because they're bad, now, I'm not saying that's not the case, but not just because of that, um, but because they lack language. That these problems actually tend to resolve themselves when they have the words to process their feelings and to navigate their relationships. One of the nice things about the Bible is it's really, really big and it is full of words. And the Bible is actually a rich resource for giving us tools to process our feelings, to process how we think of our own actions and relationships. So today, I wanna to tap the resources of the book of Isaiah the prophet, which is sometimes dubbed the fifth gospel, for its rich vocabulary for sin and redemption. Earlier in the book, the prophet Isaiah warned the kings of Judah to place their trust in the Lord alone, to abandon their sinful ways of oppression or else suffer military defeat or conquest. It didn't go well. God's people end up conquered and exiled. Starting in chapter 40, we read of a new era in which God remembers his ancient promises and allows Judah's conquerors to be conquered and he moves the new rulers to allow God's people to return to their ancestral home. The last 10 chapters reflect a time shortly after God's people have returned to their land. They have already tasted redemption. Chapter 59, however, addresses the continuing reality of sin for God's people. Now, going through a chapter like this can be a real downer, an exercise unnecessarily gloomy for reading Isaiah as the fifth gospel. And often when somebody wants to speak of sin for more than a few minutes, that indicates something's wrong with them. But as one commentator has noted, rarely in scripture do we find such a rich vocabulary for sin. And in its own way, having such a vocabulary is in itself redemptive. And that is why my sermon bears the title, In Defense of Sin. Now, I am not defending it a fact, of course. Sin is by definition bad, so please don't do it. Put down your phone before texting the bishop. <laughs> but what I do want to defend is the vocabulary for sin, or simply doing, which is all I mean by it. The vocabulary we find in scripture and Isaiah 59, thank you, Grant, by the way, for enduring through that chapter. Isaiah 59 offers us a rich vocabulary here for sin because of the Bible's propensity for metaphors. And we'll talk about why that can be a valuable thing for us. 
First, I want to let you know that I approach this topic partially as a former writing instructor. So I am disposed to cherish clarity of language as a cardinal virtue. As one of my own teachers used to say, clarity of writing reflects clarity of thought. I would like to make the case that clarity in our moral clarity reflects purity of heart. But first, let's address a prior question. How do we so often manage to obscure our meaning? Let me see a show of hands. Has anyone here read something in school, maybe a textbook or an article, that was boring? That's what I thought. Do you want to know why academic writing is so often boring? It's actually pretty simple. It boils down to nouns, abstract nouns, to be exact. So for example, you might encounter monstrosities like the amount of growth of the seedlings was directly proportional to the duration of exposure to sunlight. In addition to that sentence's being dense and opaque, nothing happens in the sentence. Of course, I would have a writing student revise it into something much simpler and concrete, not to mention interesting. The sun made the plants grow. <laughs> as silly as that example appears, we often resort to abstract language like that all the time when it comes to our own moral action. And here, I want to be clear. I speak as these things apply to me, myself. Um, one abstract noun that I have found that has kind of come in and conquered some of my vocabulary to talk about a number of things, um, sin, shame, pain, all manner of human experience, um, it's a word that you may often find yourself using too, and hopefully you're not tempted as I am, but it's the word brokenness. Now the beauty of the word brokenness lies in its flexibility. It covers a range of much broader than sin. It helps describe situations where perhaps you've been on the receiving end of sin or injustice. And while you may know that at an intellectual level you've done nothing wrong, you still feel morally damaged. So I want to first thank God that we have found a helpful way of talking about those kinds of experiences and emotions. Now, where it has crept into my head in a less helpful way is in describing actions that are, shall we say, morally suspect. Brokenness is a state of being. It is not something we do. As we'll see momentarily, scripture can give us the gift of moral clarity if we let it. It can help us pick apart our brokenness, as it were, and answer the question, who broke what? I want to emphasize here that I'm not picking on a single word. This is simply how my own weird brain works. One of my favorite examples of this problem of obscuring our actions comes from one of the greatest masterpieces of modern art, Futurama. It's a TV show. Fry and Bender were specifically told not to overload the cart they were using to make a delivery because it would break easily. They disregard those instructions and they break the cart. When they're confronted about it, Bender disclaims, some breaking occurred, the dolly was involved, that's about all we know. <laughs> it's not unlike the story of Moses and Aaron and the whole episode with the golden calf. When Moses comes down from the mountain with the law, he confronts Aaron, 
Aaron replies, look, we threw some gold into this fire, out came this calf, that's about all we know. <laughs> In Aaron's defense though, Moses was the greatest sinner of all time. He broke all 10 commandments at once. When we lack the ability to name the exact nature of our offenses, it can be incredibly difficult, if not impossible, to set things right. So that's the second advantage to clear language here. Someone close to me once confronted me, in a loving way, about something I had done to offend him. And in describing my role in the matter, he kept coming back to the same words, hurtful and hurtfulness. The situation was hurtful, he said but he was adamant that he didn't want the conversation to be a, a blame thing. It's just that things were said or done that were hurtful. The reality though was that someone hurt somebody and it wasn't until we established who, me, who had hurt someone, him, and how, disrespect, that we made any progress in the conversation. Once that was all squared away, what I had done and what this person wanted from me finally came into focus, and I could do what was necessary to reconcile. Presently, though, enhancing our vocabulary for wrongdoing enhances our vocabulary for redemption. So for example, scripture often describes sin as a burden. The lovely thing about burdens is they can be lifted. Likewise, sin is said to be a stain. The stain can be washed. Jesus himself often likened sin to a debt. And if it is a debt, then like a debt, it can be forgiven. All of which is to say, by using the, the language of the Bible itself, we can enrich and extend our language of thanksgiving for what God has done for us. Isaiah 59 and countless other passages of scripture enable us to identify and describe moral action through rich metaphors. Why would God choose to speak this way to his people? Does metaphor actually get us closer to the truth of the matter? I often resort to um, the... Thank you, Lord. I often, re I often resort to the language of... Uh, he was a French philosopher named Paul Ricoeur um, who thought a lot about how metaphors work. He said that the beautiful thing about them is metaphors make the abstract concrete. Figurative language can actually bring us closer to the truth than we otherwise could without it. So take this example. I could use less figurative language to describe my relationship with my wife. I could say, I love Jody. And to intensify that description, I could say, I love Jody a lot. And I could have her swooning if I said, I love Jody to a very great degree. <laughs> now, compare that with a more poetic mode of expression, as in Robert Burns' classic poem. Oh, my love is like a red, red rose that's newly sprung in June. Oh, my love is like the melody that's sweetly played in tune. Though both modes of discourse are, strictly speaking, true, though poetic language does greater justice to the reality of my love for my wife. Of course, the scriptures are replete with such examples. Let's take Psalm 42 for, for one. The psalmist's image of the soul's desire for God goes like this. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my, so my soul pants for you, O God. 
Now, which is the more concrete expression? That psalm or something like, I feel a great lack of God inside of me, a very big lack that I would like satisfied. One of the reasons these are so much more satisfying is that metaphors are what we could say productive of meaning. They're a gift that keeps on giving. In Recur's famous words, the symbol gives rise to thought. That is, I am of course not married to a bright red flower with a bloom time in June. But by bringing two different things together, my wife, a rose, I open a fresh window onto the reality of things. So I want to approach Isaiah 59 now. Um, this is a text that we might otherwise try to avoid um, because of this, but I, I'm hoping to make a case that it is valuable for us as we try to look into scripture as a mirror as our sermon series on James turned up. First we have verses one through two. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Here we have an image of a great gulf between the people and their God, and we have the further notion that God is even hiding from them. In Psalm 13 that we read together, you have that same image, God, do not hide your face from me. We know the people here are in some kind of distress. They need some sort of saving. But by way of reminder, in this part of Isaiah, God's people has already been redeemed from exile. They're home from Babylon by this point. So the distress is likely not some concrete historical situation, but just this feeling of separation itself. That is to say, the nation of Judah continues to sin even now. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. Hands, fingers, lips, tongue. Perhaps we don't even need to speak here of figurativeness. These are real, physical things. But in any case, they are a reminder that we are embodied creatures. The list reads like an inversion of what we're supposed to do according to Deuteronomy 6, which is to bind God's words to our hands, to our feet, to our foreheads, to keep his word always in our mouths. The prophet continues, no one enters suit justly, no one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas, they speak lies. Here the prophet brings to mind a court setting. Not a single person, cries the prophet, goes to court to bring the truth to light, to make the world a more just place, or to plead an honest cause. No, these courts, indeed the entire legal system, is perverted. The reasons why are left to our imagination, though if ancient Israelite courts are anything like ours, it's not hard to fill in the details. Maybe it's to seize someone's property that's not yours. Maybe it's to take down a rival. Maybe it's to get you or your friends off the hook for something you've done. All right, the next image is my personal favorite. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing, Men will not cover themselves with what they make. 
Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. I quizzed my daughter last night on what an adder was. She knew it was a snake, and so I followed up and asked if she knew a kind, and she replied, adders are snakes that are good at math. <laughs> she makes me very proud. <laughs> what I think Isaiah is going for is that these perverters of justice hatch lies like a brood of venomous snakes. An adder's eggs may look like food, but they'll kill you. Now, I can't vouch for the science behind that, but that's the idea. A spider's web may resemble thread that you could sew into garments, but it's not. It will leave you naked and cold. Thus, lies resemble the truth, but they're deadly. And lies, once hatched, bring forth more lies. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Here we're presented with the image of two paths. One path is a road that is tread by the wicked, who not only shed innocent blood, but they are impatient to get on with it. It is a path marked by destruction. The visuals from the post-apocalyptic film The Road, based on the novel by Cormac McCarthy, come to mind. To either side of this road lie ruins and ashes. The other path, the way of peace and justice, is completely foreign to them. Now, as we look at verses 9 through 13, we start to see the payoff of the concrete images used to describe the ways God's people have fallen short. It's one of the most moving, beautiful, and passionate prayers of confession in the entire Bible. This is the confession that have been inspired by those verses. The people say, Therefore justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. I would fail to do justice to this text by attempting to translate it out of its current poetic form, so I won't do that. If anything, the words are too clear. I will just say this. In the midst of all that powerful imagery, a single word for me stands above the rest. We. You see, in this section, there's a sudden shift in the chapter to the first person plural. The chapter began with an indictment addressed to you all. It's plural in Hebrew. Then it becomes generalized with a third person plural, they. But now, all these metaphors are brought home to we, to the people themselves. Now, to be clear, these are corporate sins. But in a certain sense, the people who speak in these verses don't have to do this. They don't have to internalize all the things we've been talking about. 
Remember, Isaiah chapters 56 through 66, they're addressed to the faithful remnant of Judah that has survived and returned from exile in Babylon. They're in their new, they're in their new old home once again. They could acknowledge what the prophet says as the sins of their community around them, or even their own mistakes from the past, but they could choose to distance themselves from this language. But, by the, but they don't. They don't say, we don't have to think about that stuff anymore. By the grace of God, we've been saved. Surely, we don't need to feel guilty about anything. No, that's not the direction God's people go here. In their confession, they take the words that came before and own it all as we. I take this to be based not in principle, but in fact. In other words, they're not owning this out of an abstract conviction that everybody in a community shares in that community's sins. Rather, they're confessing it because the prophetic words have cut them to the heart and convicted them that they do, in fact, bear some guilt as well. One can be part of the redeemed faithful and still sin. Thanks be to God, that is not where it ends. It is only now, after the great litany of misdeeds, that God's people have claimed for themselves and confessed that we can appreciate one of the strongest images of salvation in Scripture. Yes, says verse 14, justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. Truth has stumbled in the public square. Yes, and you know what? The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one and wondered that there was no one to intercede. So what is God to do? God comes down himself. God descends to bring forth justice and truth upon the earth and to rescue his people from sin. So, hear these final verses of the chapter. The Lord's own arm brought salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay etc. Then he says, So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west, and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a Redeemer will come to Zion, and to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as small children, though we sometimes enter into conflict or bite each other, so to speak, you give us the tools to work through it. You've given us your word, all of which is effective. And we pray, God, that you would let these images sit with us for a while, that you will help us organize our own self-reflection based on how your scripture speaks of us, both in where we've missed the mark, but also where we can thank you and trust you, that you do not leave us to our own devices, but that you come down dressed in full armor to combat our sins for us and to rescue us. 
We thank you for these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.